Hey Martin, this hey. is Andrew. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm in uh, I'm in my summer my mom and dad's summer house up in the northern part oh. of Scotland on on the west coast. Fantastic. And I'm just I I just started driving down to uh, pick up my oldest son from the airport in Aalborg. Uh, so I hope connection is going to be great. But uh, I'll be driving in the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Oh, so great. It's a good time. So yeah. thanks, thanks for being so flexible. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. Yeah, I mean, um, things are extremely busy, but I'm still still enjoying it. Still, um, yeah, still uh, doing, doing more of the, you know, the business management aspects now. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that, that itself brings different challenges. But, you know, I'm, the important thing is I'm, you know, learning different things all of the time. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing great. I, I mean, I'm, I have like three things that I'm doing right now. One is, uh, I decided to say yes to a, a job at a small company. The name is Intasia. And, um, they have a new technology, uh, device technology, which is extremely simple. So it's um, it's a four by forty four millimeter titanium cylinder, and in that you have your active substance and you have some salt tablets that uh, act like a mini osmotic pump. So you insert it subcutaneously and it just continuously expels or injects or whatever um, the active substance into your body. And the, the first one is to treat, treat the type two diabetes. And and the cool thing is that you insert it, and it works for either three or six months, depending on oh, wow. on how severe your type two diabetes is. And and the problem with type two diabetes is it's not the the treatment. There's lots to lots of different uh, treatments available, but people are not disciplined. So more than fifty percent of all all patients are actually not taking the uh, medicine. Yeah. And uh, and that's the problem. But this one, you don't need to do anything. You go to the doctor every three or six months and. Get this device and it takes a minute or two and then you're good to go for another three or six months. So wow. that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and the wine's still going, is it? The wine is going well. <laughs> and, uh, then I'm uh, then I'm doing a lot with the um, the uh, heads of quality for the 25 biggest pharma companies. They've, I got them together and speak with one voice on the whole issue of post approval chains complexity and so on. So we actually have a lot of momentum on that right now. So it's actually really cool um, on that as well. So those are kind of the three things that I'm doing right now. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Well, I had a couple of, um, well, a few questions just to act as pointers. Um, I'm sure they'll take us in different directions, but we'll, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but the first one you know, was really just reflecting on, you know, all, how many years now have, have you been engaged in the in the industry? Uh, 30 years. This is my 30th yeah. year in the industry. Yeah. And Obviously, you... I started extremely young. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just, just about, that's what we always, that's what we all say these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if you had your, if you had your time again, Anders, when you reflect on that, would you, would you do anything differently? Yeah. So, so uh, Leslie sent me all the, the questions in advance. So I was thinking about all of them and my, my response is actually, I don't think so because, you don't know when you start your career, you don't know where things will be going and where you develop yourself and where the world is going and all that. 
So I actually, I'm actually really, really happy with all the different things I have done. I've, I've, I've changed culture in a company. I have um, integrated two large organizations. I've done a startup successfully. Um, so many things. So I don't think so. But I will say with the knowledge I have now, I would probably have done more of an effort of learning the business earlier. So instead of just doing quality, learn the business of how you run the pharmaceutical company and and what the role of quality really should be instead of what it is today where it's more a reactive uh, role in quality in general. I, I would have wanted to make that a much more proactive role early in my career, I would say. Mm. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. I think that applies to a lot of people, and I think one of the challenges that face quality professionals in particular is they, you know, they 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 don't have that awareness of the, they don't talk the language of business always. They don't talk the return on the investment. They're not always financially kind of um, literate as many other people. So when it then comes to you know, um, changing things. They struggle because of that lack of the business. Um, do you think that? Yeah. Do you think that's shared by uh, you know others in in quality, or is it unique to quality? Or you know, do you see that across the business? You know, people very siloed, very isolated, just doing their thing. I think people in general are isolated. Uh, I've siloed. I, I think there's a lot of silos. There's a lot of, of, of people being siloed. I think particularly for quality, quality is very typically the organization that is kind of known to try and keep the company out of, 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 of issues, trying to stay compliant, but always being reactive. And I think that's such a shame because if you were more proactive, we would prevent crises from happening. We would have early detection of issues. There'll be so many things we could do so much better if we apply quality in a in a risk-based approach in a, in a more business approach and I, I i hope that that is something we can maybe change in the future but that, that's definitely something that i i thought a lot about and i think we are extremely isolated or siloed sorry not isolated uh, siloed yeah and when you, when you think back anders to you know because understanding the business can cover so many things from Supply chain, logistics, finance, marketing, HR, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, legal. When you reflect back, was there any particular part of the business that, if you had to prioritise, say, look, I'm going to really understand legal better, I'm going to understand sales and marketing better. Is, is there any one area that you felt you'd, you'd have got bigger bang for your buck, and the knowledge would have been? would have enabled you to have been better at doing what you've been doing? I think there are specific to quality. I think there are two experiences I've had in my career where I've been very fortunate. One is um, starting my own company with, with five of my friends, um, and we grew that company from six to about 200 in five years and were profitable after the five years. But I reported to the chairman of the board, and he was a 
venture capital guy, still is a venture capital guy. So having a head of quality report to the venture capital guy and really learning the business and the finances made me see that if you do quality right, then it's an extremely big benefit. And one of the unique selling points, one of our USPs in the company I started, CMC Biologics, was exactly that we deliver good quality on time. And for that, we could charge a premium, which really was worth it for the companies because they did get what they needed. So that was one thing I learned a lot, putting a business spin on quality and, and really learning, um, being more proactive. The other one that I experienced is that I had to change an entire organization with thousands of people, and I had to change them relatively fast. So there I learned how you get um, an entire organization to move in the same direction, how you start a movement for change, and how you really apply principles of co-creation and people having the same purpose lining up to uh, the purpose of the company. Um, that was another experience that was incredible to see the culture of a change of an organization change. I've only read about it before, but actually seeing it and being part of it, that was, uh, that was incredible. That, that, those are probably my two, my two uh, highlights. But I've, I've been so fortunate. Every job I've taken has been different from the others. And yeah. uh, that's great. And I, and I think everyone should try that. Don't take the next job in something you tried before completely. Try new things every time you try a new job. It's, that's what develops you and and uh, makes it more interesting. Yeah. So, what, you know, what did I, I probably answered the question then, the next one, and is around what advice, you know, if you, if you, if there was a 22-year-old wet behind the ears graduate or MBA person joining your team and you were their mentor, you know, what would you, what would you, what would you say anything different to them what, than what you've just already said, which is, you know, challenge, get to learn the business, not just your job. Would, would you give them any other advice? Um, yeah, because this generation that um, that that is the twenty-some-year-olds is another generation that that you and I um, grew up in, Martin. So uh, one one thing I would say is don't change jobs too often. I think I think what everyone should do is to do the best he or she can do. Um, in in a job, learn first. But once you learn, you should give something back to the company. That's what I've always thought. That first you learn, then you give something back. And once you you feel that, that that's a good balance, that's where you move on. So that's advice number one. Don't change jobs too often. Uh, advice number two is um, stress yourself in a new position so that's a little bit from what I said before but stretch yourself into a new position try something you haven't tried before because in any job you have if it becomes routine and you really know everything well that's the time where you don't develop and you might not be doing the right things for the company yeah. and then the third the third thing that I'd say which I think is extremely important to remember is the business we're in 
is an amazing business to be in because this is about public health. So I always have that in front of you. And in every single decision you make, everything you do, think about that there's a patient out there and what would that patient think and what would that pay, what would you do for that patient. And I, I think particularly in the quality role, you end up very often in the gray zone where it's not a clear yes or no or clear this direction or that direction, but really you're going to use your judgments. And if you use your judgments and have the patient at the center of that, then you're never going to make a wrong decision. And I think that's actually very important. So that would be my third advice. Those three things I would say yeah. would be the things I would say. When you, you, know, you, when, when you talk about you know that um, taking a risk, stretching yourself. When you when you reflect, Anders, on 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 your on your career, what was the the single biggest challenge that you faced in your career, and and what did you learn from that? Uh, there were two, but I'll mention one since you said you wanted one. <laughs> um, we realised at some point that. Um, there was an organism that no one had heard about before in the farm industry and it's called Leptospira and we identified that as a contamination when I worked with Genentech and the the special thing about that is it's a a little bit shaped like a fusilli so it could actually kind kind of like just like it's a screw through a 0.2 micron filter. So where the industry until then thought that if you just had a what we call sterile filtration 0.2 micro filter, you were you were safe, and that would keep all organisms out. We found out that that was not the case in, for this particular organism, Lepsospira. Um, it's slow growing, so it's very difficult to see. So companies might have the, the contamination without really knowing that. And I made the decision that this is something that everyone needs to know about. Um, So taking that knowledge and bringing it to the rest of the world and communicating it, talking at conferences and so on, um, I actually feel very proud about. But it was also an extremely tough situation because the company was under a lot of pressure. And all of a sudden, there was an entire industry that had to start thinking about this topic again, uh, or not again, but for the first time. So, um, so that's one. If you want to hear the other one, I can yeah, speak about yeah. that too. So the other one is what's called low endotoxin recovery, LER, and that was something we identified that um, it's about it's 50 or 52 years ago that the modern LAL method, the kinetic uh, methods, um, was uh, developed uh, by Jack Levin and and other people. And that has been a fantastic test, and it's been so much better than the pyrogen test, which involved uh, rabbits and all that. Here you just have a a test kit, and you don't involve any uh, organisms in it or living organisms. But there's something that's called low endotoxin recovery, and we've found out that certain formulations uh, cause low endotoxin recovery. So if you have endotoxins 
and you use these traditional tests, you might actually not detect it. So you think that this is okay, but it's actually not okay. Um, so that was uh, that was a very uh, interesting learning, and uh, also in this case, it was something that I decided that what we learned at Genentech, we had to share with the whole world, and um, and we did. We went to the FDA first, communicated at conferences. Um, FDA actually uh, developed a, a paper specifically on this. USP introduced this as well uh, as something you need to look at, and uh, and very recently PDA published a technical report on this particular topic, and that was all because we found out about this at Genentech, and we decided that this is something the rest of the world needs to know about. So both of these have to do with safety, and you learn something where you know that others can have the same issue. And you kind of feel that you are morally and ethically um, required to or really should communicate this to the world. So I, I feel actually I feel very good about that. Mm -hmm. I would say, from a professional perspective, are probably the two highlights. I would say. I mean, you know, when you the term resilience is banded about a lot these days, Anders, and you know when. Yeah. You, know, you and I have been in situations where, you know, as we would say, your back is really against the wall, you know, whether it be that incident with Leptospira, um, you know, whether it be, you know, dealing with warning letters, consent decrees, changing culture and so on and so forth. When it comes to being in the heat of the kitchen, um, not just for weeks, but for months and months and months, what advice would you give somebody in the joining the industry to you know when faced with those types of challenges what you must do to get through this is a b and c what would you what would you say to people to get through those tough times um i would say always have the picture of patience and the objective and and public health in front of you, and it might seem as as kind of buzzwords and so on, but it, it really is is not in my case. I literally, um, when I make decisions, have been thinking about the patient in front of me. That whichever way I say yes or no, or this direction or that direction, what is the right thing to do? So you can talk about resilience, you can talk about integrity. That's a good word as well. But at the end of the day, what is the right thing to do for patients? Um, and that—that has—that I think is my advice. People need to have that in front of them. I literally, when I've been feeling the heat and everybody's looking at me and like not sure what the right decision is, I literally have been sitting thinking about what would I do if this was family members. Them, medication and, and I was to make a, a decision for them or any patient really um, and then that actually makes it easy and, and, and the funny thing is it can also make it easy if you know that you have a non-compliance with the GMPs but if you stop um, supplying to the market there might be people dying 
mm. you have to find that balance. So sometimes I have made decisions where I knew this was not combined to the GMPs, but if I didn't do this, then I know that people would die because they couldn't get the medication. Of course, in those situations, I would always, 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 always inform the health authorities about, I made this decision, and if you want to challenge it, let me know and we can talk about it, but I made this decision, and you need to know that I have balanced the risk to patients versus the risk to compliance. Um, and of course, you never do that if it has to do with safety. You, you, can't, you can't compromise on that. But, but I always kept those things ahead of me or in front of me and saying, what's the right thing to do here? Um, and that makes it actually easy if you do that. Yeah, it does. Question related to that, Anders. I mean, I, I was reading um, something about Warren Buffett the other day, and he kind of gives his top ten tips and hints for you know young professionals. And one of them, none of them were really surprising, Anders, but one of them resonated with me because I don't think it would have been on my list. But when I saw it, I thought, yeah, I get that. And one of his top 10 was knowing when to leave your company you know knowing when yeah. the time is right to move on now you've 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 done that and yeah. how, how do you what what guidance would you give people in helping them to know when it's right to go if one is if you no longer have your heart in it then you have to go because in this world of being in a job where you serve public health and you have a very tough job sometimes in terms of making decisions and so on, if your heart is not in it, then that's that's one that's one indicator. Another indicator is if you feel that the absolute senior management is not supportive of what you think should be the direction of the company, then that's that's another uh, indication. And then the third one is that if you just feel that you have developed what you said you were going to develop and, and you feel good about it and, and you feel that there's no more development opportunity in that company, then it's time to you for you to move on. Because I think we should also think about that anyone should try and put themselves in a situation where they're not really needed in this company anymore. Because they found a good successor, they have achieved what needs to be achieved or something. But those are three things. So, again, if you don't have your heart in it, if you feel that you're not supported by management in what you need to do or want to do, or if you simply feel that you kind of get the ceiling in what you can do of, of your own development, um, those are probably reasons to leave. Um, I have personally never regret leaving a job. Never. If you were to think forward, then I mean, it was interesting, Anders, in your your intro about this new this new device that is a game changer for people with type two diabetes. If you were to think, you know, if you know, sort of imagining it's twenty thirty, um, what will the what, what in your opinion will the industry look like, and what must companies be doing to you know prepare for that? Well, another way of looking at it is what if you do a, a just 
progression of what happened, what has happened the last 40 years till now. And then if you just say, okay, what if you project exactly that, what, that from 40 years ago to now, where would we be in 2030? So 10, 10 years from now, 10, 11 years from now. And if we do that kind of math, we would not have developed at all because fundamentally the role of quality, in my view, has not changed the last 40 years. It has been in the role and it's, and it's enforced by FDA and other agencies when they go out and do inspections because they do inspection for compliance. They write us off if we've forgotten to put a sign and date on a piece of paper or if there's a validation report where there's a minor mistake or if we were five days late on developing or completing a deviation, then we get an observation for that. And then what happens is that the quality's role is coming back and reduced again to being a function where they they have the oversight, they make sure that there's a police that enforces the GMPs and so on. And if that's the way we continue, then there's not going to be any change 10 years from now. And I think that would be a shame. And I know that there are some very progressive people in some of the agencies. One of the most progressive people I've ever met, actually, in my career is uh, Janet Woodcock from FDA. Her ideas are exactly where they need to be in terms of of ensuring the right quality. But that should be a quality organization that is way more proactive where quality understands the role as the business partner, where they can weigh in on things and, and have the right risk assessments. And, and you focus on things that is in direction of continually improving things. I think it will be continue to be very difficult to implement new technologies because of the global regulatory complexity. And regulatory agencies have to come to an understanding that collectively they are slowing down innovation and they are indirectly causing drug shortages uh, because of this complexity. Um, so if we're not changing, if we're not changing now, things are going to look exactly the same 10 years from now as they do today and they did 40 years ago. Um, and I think that's a conversation we need to have as quality professionals um, how do we want to change this? And that's why I'm really encouraged about the one voice of quality where the heads of quality for the top uh, 25 pharma organizations have said they want to work together to help reduce the regulatory complexity, improve innovation, and reduce drug shortages. Um, I'm not sure if you thought that would be the answer I would give. You might be surprised to that, but it's a little pessimistic. <laughs> no, I, mean. <laughs> I mean, I often think, Anders, I, I describe the pharmaceutical industry as an industry, <coughs> excuse me, driven by 21st century science managed by 19th century uh, mindsets being governed yeah. by 19th century laws. Yeah. And it's really difficult to where that you know to 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 get to a level of um, uh, alignment when those differences are so so stark. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anders, if you if you had a must-read list, you know, if somebody said to you, because I always think, you know, a lot of the, if not all of the challenges that we face, have, are, 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 most of them are not new. I always joke by saying to people, look, the answer's on Amazon. You know, you just need to go out there and and read yeah. what others have done. In your career, are there any uh, any books or references that have left uh, a mark on you? And you would say to people, you've got to go and read this because this will help. Are there any? Is there anything that really comes to mind? Yeah. So the question that Leslie said was about five books. So yeah. I was, I was, I was struggling to get it down to five, <laughs> and I, and I, and I, um, and it's actually really funny. One, one I would say is I not use any fiction books or something like that. I, I no. answer the question in, in terms of leadership. So, what are the best five, five best leadership books I've read? Um, and it's actually funny because I've decided that I want to write a an article about. All the leadership books I've read, not all of them, but 15, 20 of them, and what was the one thing I got out of each of these 15 books and see what people would say. I thought that would be an interesting article to write. Yeah. So I, I, so, so I have, I picked up five, and let me see if I remember them. So first is uh, uh, Edward Deming. Uh, I think he was an extraordinary absolutely brilliant thinker and he's the kind of guy you can read and you can read again and you read something different it's a little bit like religious people when they read the bible and they read something different every time they read yeah. the bible every time i read deming i see new things yeah and i see uh, the whole thing about how it's all about people people read deming as all the things were lean and six sigma and all of that but it's a whole people's side that is fascinating. So, book number one would be The New Economics by Deming. And that's why he talked about the system of profound knowledge and all of that. So that And that's based on, again, the 14 points of management. So that's book number one. Uh, book number two would be Accelerate by John Carter. And that is, I think, kind of the essence of all of John Carter's theory about how you change culture in a sustainable way in organizations, how you lead by head and heart, how you co-create and all of that. So that's book number two, how do you engage an organization? Book number three would be Influencer uh, by Patterson and a bunch of other people. I think there are five or six authors. And that is extremely good if you want to um, learn how you influence when you don't have the organizational responsibilities, so when you don't have the line yeah. hierarchy and you can just say, I'm just telling you, you need to do this. And what I really learned on that, which is extremely interesting, I think, is uh, many people talk about that you need to motivate people, but they're building at three levels, individual, smaller network, and larger network, of two things. One is to motivate and the other one is ability. And many times, and I've seen this so many times in my career, many times you motivate people, but they're not capable of doing it because they don't have the ability. So you need to make sure for things to happen that people know 
what they need to do. So that's where the education and competence is coming and so on. So that's book number three. And then uh, let me just think about, I had two more uh, that I was thinking about. Um, uh, Let's see, I had, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, uh, Dan and Chip uh, Heath, um, the book that's called Switch. And uh, they work a lot about how you make change as well and in organizations. And and one thing that I think is really um, interesting there is um, looking for bright spots because most of our solutions have happened somewhere else. And uh, everyone should be proud of stealing what works somewhere else. And if you see something in a big organization that the organization is generally struggling, but there's one department that's doing really well, that's where I would that's where I would start uh, looking and see what do they do that I could do with the rest of the organization. Yeah. So that's book number four, and then book number five is uh, Stephen Covey's uh, yeah. the Seven Habits uh, of Highly Effective People. Yeah. And that's a classic. It's also an old book. That's a little bit like Deming. It, it's an evergreen. And it's incredible his insights, um, and and maybe one thing that that's interesting there. I just read it again, and and one of the things he says: imagine all the time you spend on thinking about how you do your work the best possible way to be a very good leader. And then he he asks the question: Are you spending as much time on your own family and on your family situation? to make that work the best possible way. And I think that he was always good at doing both in terms of both work situations and family situations. Yeah. So that's also a book you can keep reading again and again and find new interesting things. Yeah, so, yeah. Those are my five. Oh, good. No, some really good recommendations there, Anders. I mean, it's, it's, when I thought about this, when I look at my library of books at home, you know, somebody said to me, if your house was burning down, which five would you take? <laughs> yeah, what are your five? What are your five? It's, it, I said, it's an interesting one. I, I would, Covey would certainly be there. Yeah. Um, there was a book um, I've read recently. It was called Discovery. And it's, it should be required reading for any for everyone because it it's a sort of four or five hundred page book um, and as that basically describes the world and basically says, look, um, we've been here before with the Renaissance. Um, you know, we've been faced with challenges in the past and all we need to do is apply the same kind of principles to global warming, to, to uh, commit globalization and everything else. And I found that really, it, it was really kind, kind of the 100,000 foot level of, you know, this right. is the environment that we all live in and work in, and we need to uh, adapt. So that would certainly be one of mine. Um, I don't know what the others would be because I've, I've read so so many. It's really and there are so many to choose from. But Covey would be there. Um, yeah. uh, Dem- Deming would be there because I agree with you. Every time you read Deming, um, it kind of uh, jumps out at you, and there's always something new. People say to me, what's the best leadership book you've ever read? And the response I always give is South by um, um, 
oh, the Antarctic explorer. Oh God, what's his name? And not Amazon, the the other, the, the British. Uh, and, um, oh. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, because you know, this is a guy who Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton, yeah. and when you yeah, read, yeah. you know, this is a guy who had his, you know, they were isolated on an ice floe for three years, and the experiences he took them through, and he brought them all back alive, and how yeah. he selected his team, how he managed his team through adversity for me, is probably the best book uh, on leadership you can ever read. Another one by, I, I keep this one on my desk, in, interestingly, it's called Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, yeah. You know, and that, that, you know, when you read it, it's a bit like Covey. You read it and go, this guy's been there, done it, made the mistakes, really understands how to run a business and, and, and leadership. Uh, so, yeah, those, those, those would be some of mine. Um, what about, what about your what about your if you were cast away on a desert island <laughs> and as if, if if there was a piece of music you had to take what would it be and why? <laughs> so um, I thought about that as well. I love country music. I really like um, live. I like uh, Eric. Uh, sorry, I like. Uh, Brothers Osborne, I like uh, Keith Urban, and I like St. Brown Band uh, live. But I hope I can expand it to an album, and that would be Queen's uh, <laughs> Greatest Hits. I, I would say I'd never get tired of listening to Queen's uh, yeah. Greatest Hits. I think that is, that is, through all times, everybody loves it, the new generation loves it. With Adam Lambert uh, now being the lead singer, it's, it's, it's a whole new generation that listens to it again now, and it's, it's just yeah, I'll, that would be what I would bring with me on a, on an island. Yeah, if if if, if, if the choice of mine, I, I tend to listen to a lot of classical. I would I would take Vaughan Williams' um, Lark Ascending. Because, right. you know, it's one of those pieces of music that you can visualize. It takes me back to the North York Moor. So I can be in a taxi in New York or in a hotel in Shanghai. If I listen to that, it kind of takes me home. It, it, it transforms me from that, that environment right. back to this landscape where, yeah, so the, that, that would be mine. Um, right. Uh, Anders, in terms of your hobbies and interests, you know, I mean, I know, I know what they are, you know. But what, what do you do, and why are you passionate about them? All right. So my number one hobby, which is also a business run, uh, side of, of what I'm doing, is, as you know, um, my winery, so winemaking. Um, so I, I am the winemaker, um, and I love being creative, and it's very different from. The job often in often with quality, you you end up in that situation that um, you have to deal with problems, and some days are easier than others. But having your own winery and tasting room, people always come in to a tasting room because they want to have a good experience. You meet so many different people, and I love uh, making the wines. Have people talk about the wines and. Uh, I've been very, uh, I've been very fortunate that uh, I've been able to 
make wines in a in an area which is known for, for winemaking, so in California. And um, I really, I just really like that. Um, I recently, uh, you don't need to put this in the article, but no. I actually recently, I recently just got the best in class and was uh, <laughs> competition for American wines. Wow. It was pretty cool to see a wine critic start writing about flying suitcase wines and Oh, that was really cool, actually. It's I must, I must, I, I must find a bottle. Yeah, I must. You and I, I know you and I. know we're 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 overdue this, Anders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're both busy guys and all that, but I would love to spend a couple of days with you, having good food. That would be wonderful. Wine, and then write some really good articles. I think yeah. you and I could, in a conversation, kind of. Go back and forth and things that really, yeah. Put, yeah. really no, I, 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 I thought I thought things to paper. <laughs> <laughs> On the, yeah. and, and as you know, you, you hear you hear this this talk about you know generations X, Y, and Z. You hear talk about there is no longer such thing as work-life balance. You know, what would you say to people in the industry? You know, working hard. You know, some some have hobbies, some don't. You know, your winemaking is your passion. What would you say to people when it comes to the importance of passions outside or interests outside work? You have to have that. You, you, if, you, if you spend all your life with your work colleagues, you, you lose the, the inspiration. You end up doing the same thinking. Um, everybody, so you have to one one for stimulation and and, and just interest and so on. Um, and the other thing, you need to have your mind go somewhere else, and you need to recharge, to relax, and and so on. Um, so I, I yeah, I think that's super important. Maybe one thing to say also is uh, that um, I started time boxing a lot. Oh, did you? Yeah, I never thought about that uh, that much, but I'm doing time boxing. So um, I think about that, okay, there's so many things that I need to do. So, so another book is actually uh, Essentialism, Essentialism uh, by Greg McKee. Oh, that's that's great book, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good book too, I think. And um, and that that is also a little bit about time boxing. You say you focus on what where you make the biggest influence and, and where you're trying to spend the best possible way. But time boxing, I do and I do it a lot with people who have who struggle with with finding time. Um, so that's one thing I do. I do a lot of the, the time boxing. Um, and my advice to people, and sometimes I actually tell people to do this. I say, they say I'm so busy with what needs to be done by tomorrow. And I say, well, but there are also things that, it's, and in COVID's world, it's it's the matrix of urgent and important. And, and I say, if you only are in the in the quadrant that is urgent and important, you're gonna burn out one day because you're gonna firefight, you're gonna do what have what needs to happen by tomorrow and all that. You have to find out what are you, how are you going to do what is important but not urgent. Because that's where you develop your organization. That's where you develop yourself. That's where you bring things forward. Um, 
And if you have problems of getting to what's important but not urgent, that's where you can time box it. Yeah. Because you can always you can always fill eight hours in a day. You can fill ten hours. You can fill twelve hours. There's no limit, and you will never get your job done. You'll never ever get your job done. So why don't you take out two hours every week to do something else, or three hours, or four hours? And in the longer run, you'll be so excited about what you do achieve, or what is important, but not urgent. That that brings your energy, and you're actually better at the other things you you're doing, and you you're finding ways to get the the urgent stuff done also. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, Anders, that's been that's been enlightening and it's been entertaining as well. So, um, <laughs> I, what I'll do, I mean, we could talk for hours.